0: Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Right now, while Amarillo is dealing with a surge in COVID-19 cases, I've decided to re-release some of my favorite episodes from early in this podcast's run. Today's episode was originally recorded in December of 2018, and it features Mason Rogers. Before we start, though, this episode is sponsored by Bivens Point. I didn't get to spend Thanksgiving with my parents this year, and I haven't seen my 99-year-old grandmother in person since January. In 2020, all of us with older parents or grandparents have been thinking about their health. We've been thinking about senior health care more than ever before. Someday all of us may get to a place where we have to make decisions about rehab or nursing care for those family members. And when that time comes turn to Bivens, a long-trusted name for senior health care in Amarillo. They've suspended visitation right now to keep the residents safe. But if you'd like to learn more about this wellness community, which is really, really impressive, visit BivensPoint.org. That's point with an E. Okay, so if you've seen new construction happening in Amarillo, especially if it's a local business and if it's got, well, if the building has some personality, odds are Mason and his team at Playa Design are behind it. Mason Rogers is an architect. He's one of the principals behind Playa Design Studios. And even if you don't know his name, you've probably seen his work around town. This interview took place the same year. The award-winning building for Six Car and Crush opened on Polk Street. And since then, Mason and Playa have been involved with a lot of new building projects, including the Ronald McDonald House, Opportunity School, the redevelopment of Arts in the Sunset, and a new Palace Coffee location on Georgia, which I'm really excited about. Like most architects, Mason puts a ton of thought into not just how a building looks, but how it acts, what it does, what its personality is, how efficient is it. And so back in the very first year of this podcast, I talked to him about architecture, especially about Amarillo architecture, past and present. Here's Mason Rogers. Mason Rogers, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here today.
1: Hi, Jason. Thank you for
0: coming to see me. Well, I uh, I want to talk definitely about your work, uh, about the stuff that Playa has done and um, the buildings and projects you're involved with. But before we get to that point, i I like to establish my guest in this area. So how did you end up in Amarillo in the first place?
1: I've, uh, I'll tell you, first of all, that I'm a, I've am a listened to, I think, every one of your episodes. And so I know you love a good entrepreneurial story. Yeah, I, I do. So, um,
0: And thank you for listening.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Um, the uh, story starts with my, uh, my dad, before my older brother was born, was in the, he was a golf professional, and uh, he was figuring out that working seven days a week at a golf course was not conducive to family life, and he was giving lessons to, a, uh, to an older gentleman who was a real estate appraiser, who kind of took my dad under his wing, and this is in Waco, Texas, kind of taught him the business, and then sort of taught him enough to set him out to go um, find a place to start a business. And so I was born in Waco, but in 81, so I guess I was three years old. My dad and mother and my older brother and I moved to Amarillo uh, for my dad to start his real estate appraisal business and kind of moved to Amarillo with nothing but a professional license and a willingness to work hard. I've been here all the way through high school and then moved away Let's see. So I went to Belmar, Crockett, and Amarillo High, and then um, went to the University of Texas and studied there for a while. I ended up transferring to Abilene Christian University halfway through college. Uh, My wife, Kelly Rogers, um, we met in high school at Amarillo High, and she went to Abilene Christian, and I went to the University of Texas. And after two years, I decided that was enough enough of that, and I wanted to be closer to her, and also was just kind of Looking for my place and what I wanted to do with myself, and I kind of always loved building things and figuring things out and that kind of thing. And so uh, went to Abilene Christian to get a degree in industrial management, which is basically um, kind of design and fabrication. it's It's a little different than what would think of like construction management. It's more like factories and manufacturing and those kind of things. Um, because I had um, always had the idea of being a designer. But really wanting to have my hands involved in the process. But it, um, when I was in high school, just to take a step back, I took the Ames test, which yeah. is you know uh, something where you uh, go to
0: Dallas and fill out a absolutely. whole bunch of stuff, and it tells you what you're suited for.
1: Exactly. So I took the Ames test when I was 16 or 17, and he, he said I was pretty well off the charts that I should be an architect, hmm. and but that there was to just put that out of your mind. There's no sense uh, trying to be an architect because you can't make a living. there's too, It's a the, dead-end career. The market is flooded. You know, this was, what would this be, 1994, 95? And so it was just, he encouraged me to look, to apply my skill set, uh, whatever that is for a 16-year-old boy, um, to something else. And so that's when I started looking for other design outlets and, and building things and that kind of that kind of opportunity. So in any case, so that was kind of what led me to industrial management. But then after graduating, I'd worked for a um, couple of different places in Abilene, just kind of bouncing around. And my then girlfriend, now wife, Kelly, had said, um, well, you know, didn't you always think architecture would be what you wanted to do? She's very clear and direct and, and thoughtful, and, and she's a great part of my life. And I was like, well, of course, that's that's something, but I just did really think it was an opportunity. And so I just started, I went through the phone book, and I called every architect in Abilene, Texas, until I got to the W's, and this gentleman, Rick Wetherill, took my call, told me to come in the next day, told me to start working the week after that. So hmm. so that he became and still is one of my great mentors. But I started working for him while I was getting my degree at Abilene. And then I um, decided to get a master's in architecture. And so my wife, Kelly, had been working for a political group in Abilene. She had worked for Mac Thornberry here in Amarillo um, during high school and, and in the summers. And we decided that upon graduation from Abilene, we wanted to move uh, to Washington, D.C., partially for her political work, but also um, for me to get a different perspective. I think the idea of going and get a degree, in, a master's degree in architecture, or a master's degree in anything, uh, there's some value in going out of your familiar zone or yeah. your comfort zone. Yeah. And so I applied to several places, uh, but in the end chose the Catholic University of America okay. in Washington, D.C. It's kind of a as far as the architecture school goes, it's kind of a boutique, high design, concept-driven program, and really that was kind of the change the course for me uh, as far as the way I thought about design and my career path. Um, so after three or four years there of going to school and um, getting my master's in architecture and working for a few places, moved back to Amarillo uh, and started working for Wilson Doche Architects, which was WD Architects at the time. Uh, but working for Jim Wilson and Jim Doche, uh, two great architects, uh, and really that started the practical uh, implementation of your academic architectural training, Right, um, moving beyond the conceptual to the reality and the constraints of all those fun things like budgets and gravity and you know dealing with all of that. So um, that's what led me back to Amarillo. I think once we had lived other places and experienced other things, we... Became more convinced that Amarillo was the place we wanted to be and raise our family. And it's where our heart was and is. And uh, we just knew that this was the place we wanted to try and make a difference.
0: How long was it before you decided to branch out on your own and and open Playa?
1: I, uh, I worked in... About three different firms here in town. From when I moved back to this when. It's a went pretty on.
0: limited community here of sure, architects. Sure. Absolutely, and designers.
1: absolutely. Yeah, the, I think our I think our role of licensed architects uh, hovers around thirty typically here, and there's probably twelve or fifteen firms. Um, so yeah, so it's not a lot of opportunity to branch out, but there are plenty of opportunities to go out on your own. Uh, there's plenty of work. The economy's been great since I've been in business, even. Going out on my own in 2009, you know what maybe was not ideal timing economically, but but the construction market in Amarillo has been stable. Uh, so it was about um, it was about five or six years of working for other firms before um, I went out on my own. I think I always knew that working for myself or at least having design control was uh, something that I was going to want to pursue, and maybe that made me not as good an employee as I could have been, but it also, I always had visions of um, owning my own business in a way that I could um, could have those uh, projects and work with clients directly and um, and have that kind of freedom and, and it's worked out great with Playa having um, associates here that we really are collaborative and Mike Ritter and Sarah Myers uh, it's really a it's a three-legged stool but we all have the autonomy that that we like to have as designers and uh, to be able to push the envelope come up with ideas and concepts for our clients that will uh, Make their visions into reality, or even exceed their expectations. So,
0: I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you you mentioned the economy here, um, and that earlier advice that you got, you know, that, that architecture was not a good career choice. And and I should say that I'm I'm the son of an architect, and so I yeah. I grew up knowing about that world, um, and and the industry, and kind of seeing in my dad's life and and his practice. You know how it it ebbed and flowed with the economy and with construction sure. and all those different things the 80s you know were a really tough time because it was a boom and bust sort of thing um, and and you said like since you've gotten involved Amarillo has had you know a little bit more of a bubble around it in terms of the construction happening here mm-hmm. the, uh, the opportunity here you know talk to me about what you've found since you got into it has your field been pretty consistent in the amount of work the amount of construction and stuff that you've seen Sure, I think um, it's been
1: relatively consistent. I I think one of the things that grew out of, I guess, the the beginnings of Playa in 2009, Mike and I both coming from another firm in town, um, and not just that firm, but other firms were were downsizing or kind of tightening their belts um, because, you know, the big, the school districts, the hospitals, the, you know, the big clients, the counties were not uh, releasing as much work just because there wasn't as much revenue. And everybody was just cautious about those kind of projects, and so I think the idea, or the the reality that Playa started in that environment, kind of taught us to be lean. And I think we learned how to get by with less, how to how to really run a tight ship. We still do all the drawing ourselves. Um, so I think part of that as a beginning, and that you know it doesn't take a lot of work to keep three or four people busy in our industry. Whereas if we'd have had 20 employees uh, looking for big projects, we would be sweating those changes a little bit. So we've been... I mean, you've
0: been around for 10 years now. You've had some pretty high-profile projects, and it's still just the three of you, right?
1: Yeah, there's yeah, there's four. There's three okay. of us um, that are um, professionals, and then we have a... Um, we've just taken on a draftsman that helps us learn. He's a great guy that came out of the uh, Amarillo College uh, drafting program. We've had several of those uh, over the years. But um, for the most part, it's pretty steady with Mike and Sarah and I. And so, yeah, we, we're not as fast maybe as some other firms, but we, um, there's no labor management disputes in our office <laughs> because we are all labor and management. So uh, so I think that's been a benefit of our, our size and also just our willingness to work hard and put in the extra hours when, when we have things going well. And, and then if it slows down, you know, we've never really had a point where we didn't have another project waiting but we've always been blessed to have the work, and we are committed to the quality of our work. So where I think that's been a benefit to, to keeping us busy.
0: Let's let's talk about some of the, just to give people an idea who, you know, most people don't look at a building and say, oh, who's the architect of that building? Sure. I mean, that's something yeah. that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but hardly, I, I mean, just no, most yeah. people don't think about that. Yeah. Tell me about some of the projects that uh, that Playa has been involved with.
1: Sure. Right off the bat, we uh, started getting into restaurant Projects uh, within the first couple of years, we did several restaurants, and we did several medical facilities, kind of specifically uh, dentists, orthodontists, oral surgeons, those kind of things. And so, um, one of our first big projects was the Plaza Restaurant on Sansi when they moved out of their rental space. Um, you know the traditional. What was that? Thirty fourth and Bell. Yeah, the shopping center yeah, there. Exactly, um, bought, which built, was
0: closer to our house, and then we had yeah, to start driving further.
1: Right, exactly. But the uh, they managed to transfer the quality of the hot sauce from Bell to Coulter yeah, or which to Sauncy, Was appreciated. Which is yeah, it's very good. And so, uh, and we've actually worked for the Plaza Restaurant three or four times in Lubbock and Pampa and Borger, and then we did uh, BL Bistro was one of our other. We uh, we worked for that project with our previous firm, and then we remodeled it when they expanded, um, which is now, I guess, the gym. Mm-hmm. Um, but that space, and we've done, uh, we did Kushiyama which is um, looking for uh, somebody to love that building currently. And then as far as the medical and dental, uh, Dr. Street and Dr. Schmidt are in the colonies, some, some dental projects. Um, but our first big project that really kind of stepped up to the next level was the Amarillo oral and maxillofacial surgery, which is hard to say, but it's AOMS on Sansi. And, um, and that was really one of our first opportunities to um, work with a client who wanted his building to be a bold statement. And he wanted it to say that he was on the cutting edge of his industry and he therefore wanted his building to be on the cutting edge of design and, and find a way to um, obviously meet his budget and his design criteria, but also make a big statement. And, so, and that was Billy Graves. And that's Billy Graves, there. exactly, and yeah.
0: it's a, it's a really unique building. I, I wonder how much of that, percentage-wise, how much of that was you, how much of that was him? I mean, did he just give you the freedom to do something, uh, you know, bold and modern?
1: Yeah, I think um, 100% the uh, blue and gray, the kind of, you know, Billy is from Kentucky and he's a big Wildcats fan. I think 100% the blue and gray was was billy's idea he uh, is a great collaborator uh has a lot of vision he uh he moves really fast and you got to keep up but as far as the concept of the building um he gave us free reign to come up with something that was appropriate to the site and appropriate to what he wanted to say about his practice more or less just told us he wanted to be impressed and so that was our goal and and we came back to him with design uh schemes and, and he selected the one and then we he's a um smart guy. And attention to detail is is something you uh, learn really fast when you work in the medical profession, and specifically the dental sector of the medical profession, as these guys are very detail-oriented. And so uh, fine-tuning all the details in that building was was an exciting process and challenging to get it all right and to match his vision. But I think as far as the, the kind of the big vision of the building, he gave us a lot of rope.
0: I want to ask, you know, as, as a creative person, is it easier for you to come up with concepts when you have a lot of free reign? Or is it easier when you have these boundaries that you have to work with? I mean, where do you have more freedom?
1: Yeah, no, I think uh, boundaries are great. I think the hardest thing about building in our part of the world is you'll end up with more space than you need. The potential for the project to ooze out of its confining model. And so the, something like that, where he had a pretty big lot. There was nothing facing, you know, nothing on the other side of Sansi. really nothing. Yeah, it was at the time. It was out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, at that he point. was, he was, there was a road that had been developed. Um, but other than that, Lexington and Sansi obviously were there. But other than that, there was really nothing uh, on the map out there. And so, yeah, there was, you know, borderline too much freedom on something like that. And then also you, you, around here, you start dealing with how much wind and how much solar exposure and how much You know, snow and north north wind exposure and those kind of things. And so, um, I think it's always exciting to have a project like that where you can really try to push the boundaries or try to find your boundary. And even in most cases like that, we try to establish our own boundaries because you know that the project is better if it's got rails. You know, you Mm -hmm. want you want all your energy focused in one direction. And if and if you don't have any guiding principles or limitations, then a lot of times. I said it it'll it'll ooze on you. I don't know if that's a very good architectural term, but definitely uh, we like uh, like some of our other projects, like downtown projects. The idea of strict setbacks, you know, strict property lines, no parking requirement. Like your whole building site is your building footprint.
0: Yeah, like well, like with Six car and correct, Crush yeah. that that new building, uh, which is you know one of your most prominent recent projects, you know, was on this established lot. Nothing there for a long time, surrounded by buildings, surrounded by streets, and you needed to find a way to put space for two different restaurants, a bunch of outdoor patio dining and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's a lot of limitations to work within.
1: Absolutely. And, um, And even the downtown design standards, which there's been a lot of pushback, but I think overall, the idea that we have these guiding standards that aren't really stylistic standards, they're just... You know how much sidewalk do you need? How far back from the property line can you be? How tall can you be? You know those kind of things um, are good rails to establish um, to kind of focus your design. They create in some cases uh, you have where you have to be more creative to solve the problem, which which is never a bad thing. So I think that's encouraging. Even like a building that exists, like a, a renovation. We've got several buildings on Polk Street that were either completed or working on renovations where you have a historic shell that you're trying to work within right uh, and that's effectively uh, your design guidelines is you know how do you respect that building um, while still meeting the needs of its new owner and presenting it as a uh, artifact um, at the same time giving it a new life and a new opportunity which I think is even more respectful to these old buildings than to just turn them into museums or just let them sit empty because we don't want to affect the facade or the
0: yeah and I I think a lot of people if they think about architecture at all they think about the facade I mean they think about what a building looks like don't really have a sense that all of the guts also require blueprints and drawings and you know deciding where everything's going to go and so a lot of times you're coming in and the work that you're doing is not visible until you actually enter the building and and see the layout yeah
1: absolutely and that's um, very rewarding too is when you can take a building like that that's had many lives and then take the vision of the new owner who maybe doesn't even know what the opportunities are other than they maybe have a business that they know is going in there and they know they love the facade. Maybe that's why they bought it. Or maybe they just love that it's the right amount of square footage. And they like want the
0: see. old Southwest Library on 45th Street that Absolutely. Dean Boyd moved into. Yeah. It still looks like the library, yeah. but the inside is completely different.
1: Absolutely. In, in, a, in a project like that, I think there's a, there's been a um, movement through architecture uh, over the last 100 years to uh, go from basically buildings that can serve any function to buildings that are so specific to their use that they really can't be translated into anything right. else. And so something like that library, you would almost think, you know, how could it become something else? But it was built in a way that it, the, the roof spans from exterior wall to exterior wall. There's really a few load-bearing interior walls, but the space allowed us to open it up for a lawyer. And, and his, um, was it, 20 people to move in there and and all have offices and have conference spaces and all the kind of things that go along with a legal practice. It was really a pretty seamless transition from what was you know a public library and and all the fun uh, stories we hear when people pop in there and they remember going to story time right. and story times now the the conference room where the strong arm does his work and so yeah that that's that's very rewarding I think all the way back to my um, my academic career you know I went to Catholic University my specialization was what they called urban conservation which around here is closer to like historic preservation but it was the idea that we have an urban fabric whatever scale that however dense or sparse that fabric is we have a fabric that is woven through our community and then a project like that has a life that you can't duplicate in a new construction project and so when you have the opportunity to take that and and no matter how much you change or how little you change, the previous life of the building is always there. That's a level of sophistication and integration on a design project that that you can't buy. You know, you can't, you, I can't, People, somebody can't come to me and ask me to fabricate that for them. Yeah. That, has to, that has to be ingrained in, in the building that they purchase. And so that makes it exciting. And I think, again, that goes back to projects with boundaries and, and, how that kind of focuses your design energy
0: you you mentioned that fabric i I'd like to talk a little bit um you know just just to educate listeners about what the the style um the design style the architecture of Amarillo uh, you know kind of what that story is. a lot of places you know tend to have a, a certain type of look you know sure. for their buildings downtown or for the types of houses that are there can you can you fit Amarillo into a category like that
1: that is hard, you know somebody some place like phoenix or palm beach or miami beach you know you something comes to mind when you when you say those things i think with amarillo our history as far as building and designing has you know in a a lot of cases followed the boom you know i think you know they say that the original downtown skyline was built in less than five years you know i think the story there was first like the first six buildings you know there was it was unreasonable for amarillo to have that many tall buildings but they you know it was it was oil boom time, and these buildings were were flying up. and uh, in a in a movement like that, you know optimism is high. you know and I think when optimism is high and developers are working on these projects and businesses are needing expanded space, you know there's there's kind of two routes. One of them is, we need whatever we can get right now versus we want the best that we can have because we know we can afford it or we know we're going to be able to afford it. And, you know, in some cases, projects died halfway up or or never got built because of maybe too much optimism. But as far as the style of Amarillo, I think um, it's defining characteristic would be people going and looking for the best and the highest and the, the most thoughtful design era by era, but then translating it to our region, obviously, No, there is no place like Amarillo geographically. I think that's part of the nature of designing. Here is you have to appreciate the sparseness, Mm -hmm. you have to appreciate the climate, you have to appreciate the lack of rain, the amount of wind, the amount of sunshine, you know. And so, um, and even somebody like Guy Guy Carlander, who would bring these styles, you know, working for the railroad, and he was all over the map seeing all different things and all the bigger cities where design was more competitive and people were reaching for the next level and really trying to fine tune the character of these buildings. And he was bringing these styles back, but he was translating them, you know, maybe ever so slightly, but, but giving them a local character and a local representation. And then I think, so then these buildings became uniquely regional to our, to Amarillo and the Panhandle but not specifically, maybe not even connected to each other. They're not, they don't all share the same character. Right. They share maybe a, a thread of this regional concept of the pioneer spirit, the challenge that it is to move out here 130 or 40 years ago and try to make a life out here. Um.
0: That, that's always been interesting to me about Guy Carlander's work because I—he's his is a name that I come across. Anytime I'm looking at a building, I think that's a really interesting building. I wonder who designed that. And I find out it was him. Sure. But they don't all look the same. You know, some architects have a style, they get hired for that style, but his style was pretty eclectic and it was taking a lot of different pieces and like you said, adapting it yeah. to Amarillo, from Absolutely. The Amarillo hardware building to, you know, some of the more prominent landmarks downtown. They don't really match each other right. stylistically. Sure.
1: Yeah. No, he I think he was a student of of the styles. I think the the architects of his era were were trained to learn the the language of these styles and the proportions. I think if you start looking at his projects less from a ornamentation standpoint and more from a proportional standpoint, you'll find a lot of the same proportional characteristics, structural spans, and those kind of things where he was, he was very fine-tuned in how these buildings would be good. And obviously, one of the great reasons that we're sitting here these many years later talking about Guy Carlander is because his buildings are still here. Yeah, they're like still they were, standing. They're built to last and uh and that's the difference between those two concepts uh like you said in boom time it's either you know we want the best or we it something as fast and, and easy as we can have it to get down the road and typically those are the projects that aren't here anymore and so um we've been blessed as a community by designers and developers you know designers don't exist without the developers um to have the vision you know architects love to take credit for a lot of things um, But, you know, just like Seventh and Polk is a good example, you know, that was the vision of William and Tall Ware to uh, take a parking lot and turn it into a destination. As far as the history of the design uh, work in Amarillo, I think starting with Carlander and then as we progress through the last hundred years, there's an example in pretty much every decade of somebody with a bold vision and maybe the budget to match it uh, that wanted a building that would make a statement and they weren't afraid to go and find the architect wherever in the region or the country uh, that could answer that call and in most cases um like the like the kinney residents the you know going and hiring frank lloyd wright to build your home is a pretty bold move and uh and not a cheap move uh, but they hired um John Ward locally to act as the local representative. When um, the Harrington Cancer Center was looking to build that building, uh, they went and hired Paul Rudolph uh, and they hired uh, Jim Wilson and Jim Dose to act as the local representatives. Again, did that with the uh, Channel Seven. Paul Rudolph did the Channel Seven downtown. The pyramid of power. Exactly. And you want to talk about a building that um, not all buildings fit into the fabric. Some buildings are buttons you know, on the fabric and that certainly would be a, a button building. But at the same time, uh, O'Neill Ford, one of the fathers of Texas modernism, uh, there's an O'Neill Ford house in Wolflin that is exceptional as well. So Amarilloans have never been shy about um, going and finding the things they um, deem as high quality and bringing those things back to Amarillo. I think our symphony and our opera and our um, and just our downtown in general are examples of Amarilloans with bold vision going and finding. Something that would work here, translating it, finding someone that was willing to work in our environment, and and then maybe finding somebody locally to come on board as well to give it that local touch.
0: I want to ask you, you know, before we close this section, you've seen a lot of growth in the last uh, few years having your own firm here. You've seen a lot of efforts like the revitalization downtown. There's a lot of building, you know, on the outskirts of town. What do you see the next five or ten years looking like in Amarillo in terms of opportunity and development and you know new c- construction and stuff?
1: The way I see things happening in the next five years, based on the last ten or fifteen years, uh, is that I see redevelopment playing as big a role as new development. Um, I think obviously downtown uh, is a good example of both redevelopment and new development as far as new construction. Um, but I think even old neighborhoods, I think, um, you know, even just our infrastructure has reached a point where, you know, we're having to really think hard about whether or not we can afford to expand our sewer lines, our water lines, our electrical infrastructure. You know, how much how much more area can we absorb um, where I think as people can start to look towards the middle of town rather than towards the outskirts, uh, there'll be more and more opportunities. You know, it, it's a good example of that with um, – the Wooflin Domain Project, we're just wrapping up right now, which is a development through Amarillo Pediatric Dentistry, Dr. Shane Moore, where he's bringing some multiple clinics together and, and a surgery center and all these things. But he uh, took a building in Wolfland, what would that be? Wolfland Square. Square, yeah. Um, that was uh, was a little bit run down. It was kind of the kind of the worn corner of that development. After all the redevelopment that had happened at that shopping center, and took that building down and built new there, you know, and, and all the battles we went through trying to make sure that we could meet the parking requirements and that the old sewer lines could be um, upgraded enough to facilitate his new project there. But the city was, was a good partner in something like that where they knew that a redevelopment in an area like that were still new construction, but maybe finding a unique solution on a lot that was under, underutilized. Turned out to be a great project, and it's kind of got that built-in community, that built-in charisma or charm. I think you know it's not really our designers' role to fabricate charm. You know, we can't right. we can't just build community. You know, we can we can build space and hope that community uses it to to grow. But uh, in, in a project like that, where you've got some built-in assets and you've got a lot of Things already happening all around. You know, it's a little bit quirky maybe that you're backing up to a neighborhood as opposed to just real strict zoning separations. But that's but that's the kind of thing that makes projects interesting. It makes projects great. In a lot of cases, around here it makes a project walkable, which is a kind of a rare description. You know, like in the preliminary schematic design phase, it's rare for anybody to ask us, you know, what's the walkable what are the walkable characteristics of this project? People don't you know? think about
0: that very no, often
1: here. Like how far do I have to walk to my parking place is is a more common question. Um, so anyway, so I think as far as the future of Amarillo and certainly the short-term future, very optimistic. Um, it's been a great 10 years, uh, a lot of things happening, a lot of community uh, conversations, community debates about how things should go. But at just at least we have something to talk about. You know, it's encouraging that the debate is not over what are we going to do with all these empty buildings? Right. Know?
0: So, it's uh, so very encouraging. Hey, Amarillo is also sponsored this week by Wick Realty. Wick helped me buy and sell a home right around the time I was interviewing Mason actually for this episode. And that happened to end up being the home. My family has quarantined in this year, the one we've recovered from COVID in and, the house in which I recorded almost all of this year's episodes. Wick, made that happen. What I really love is that Wick is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're buying a home, selling, if you're building, if you're looking for investment property, or even if you're a first-time homeowner, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wicrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Okay, we're back with Mason Rogers. Mason, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes at least eight different tools that families would have used while living in a 1915 kit house, which you can also see at the museum. Learn more at panhandleplains.org. I want to start by asking one that I've, I've asked a lot of other people. What's your favorite local restaurant?
1: I'm going to cheat just like uh, I've heard a lot of other people and and maybe give you two answers. I have a big family. Um, My wife, Kelly, and I have six children. And so uh, going out to eat is an exciting prospect. All my kids love it, but it's also, it can be challenging. And so you also have to, you you have kids, you know that there are kid restaurants and there are wife restaurants. And I would say uh, my wife and I, if we do get to get away on our own, we've been going to six car. I mean the food. I know that's one of my projects, and I'm I'm giving them a plug. But it really is the best food that we have found in town, and and those guys over there are really doing great things. And
0: do they have like a Mason Rogers special or something? Did they you walk don't. In and say I designed no. this building. Yeah, right.
1: It? You know, I think the the beauty of that is that uh, I don't think I've gotten the same thing twice there. I, you know, every time you go in there, there's something new and something great, and um, never been disappointed. So the other side of that coin is uh, when we'd go out as a posse, you know, all eight of us go somewhere and and we love to go to Dyer's barbecue, which is kind of old school uh right over here in uh Wellington. The food is great. It is barbecue is second to none in our opinion. The the staff is great. I think we've been going there probably 15 years since we moved back to town and, and it's been around and for and decades. Yeah. And before I think, that. Yeah, and we've had pretty well the same uh wait staff, you know. I mean, you can you can recognize the same faces around there. So, yeah. Those are our two.
0: Okay, now I, I want to take buildings that you have designed off the table um, okay, yeah. and and ask you what's your favorite downtown building.
1: Sure, um, that's a tough question. I uh, it's it's I think of it kind of like like family members. You know, I think of all the buildings um, serve their purpose and you love them all, but some days you love some more than others. But um, uh, the two that that really stand out for me, one would be more of an emotional connection, but also just kind of a formative. Building in my life is the Central Church of Christ. Uh, that's where I grew up going to church. My parents still go there. Um, Kelly and I were married in the old uh, chapel there, but the new sanctuary is a bold architectural. It's really move.
0: different compared to the other downtown absolutely. churches,
1: absolutely, and and particularly for um, for a Church of Christ sanctuary. And it's a bold architectural move. And even just as a, I remember being, you know, four or five years old and opening the door that I wasn't supposed to open into the construction and it was just this vast, you know, the hole in the ground was 15 or 20 feet and, the, and then the steel structure coming up was, you know, another 20 or 30 feet. And it's just this scale of this project. And, and then, the, again, I think the optimism of a congregation that would build something like that, not just for themselves, but also all the community things that happen in that building. So, so that's that would be the building that, I, that probably spoke to me the earliest that maybe architecture doesn't always have to look the same. Mm -hmm. Um, But then as far as just buildings that I would say that every time I go inside, uh, I'm inspired and I find something new. I love the energy and all those sort of things uh, is the public steel building on third street. Okay. And that's Chris Gleason and and his guys over there are artists. I mean, they, they they're craftsmen. the highest order Uh, we use them like seventh and polk uh the crush and six car building all that steel came from public steel but that it's just an old warehouse it's actually a conglomerate of three or four warehouses that are just open and it's just corrugated metal and the and old steel windows and um the rail line goes through the building from when they used to bring the steel through on the rail cars um and that that building just it says a lot about Amarillo to me and it says a lot about um how we grew and how we are still growing, and how you know we have a lot of craftsmen and talented people in this town that you never see because they're right. they're working in a place like that, and and it's sort of like a for me it's kind of like a wonderland. That's the building that that gets me excited, which okay. is probably a bizarre answer.
0: It is, it's it's a surprising answer, but I'll I'll accept it. What does this area have too much of? That is a tough
1: question, but I think I'll I'll stick to what I know and to my area of expertise, and I'm going to go with. Uh, architectural review boards I run into those from time to time and the the nature of an architectural review board is not a bad thing where where I start to feel like it's unnecessary or I feel like maybe it's a roadblock to like all those things we've talked about with guy from guy carlander all the way through is this bold vision for what could be next taking the vision of your client and and taking it um, and expressing it in a building form you know I think occasionally you run into these arbitrary covenants that are based on a particular style which gets a little homogenous you know once you apply the formula you know downtown wasn't developed based on stylistic requirements you know wolflin olson country club neighborhood, actually country club neighborhood that's a guy carlander yeah you know development project and so um anyway i'm i'm gonna go with arbitrary style covenants which is Am I the first person to say that?
0: I, uh, yes, you are. Okay, great, um, great. What's the purpose of those boards? I mean, I, I know sure. they do have a protective purpose, even though yeah. it, it might stifle sometimes the creativity sure. from your side. But
1: sure, yeah, it's. I mean, the, the role is to, uh, I think, fundamentally protect property values. You know, that so you don't have just something weird yeah, right next to your right. house. Right, you don't have that, outliers. I think yeah. you know. I think they're in a lot of cases. You know, in some cases, they're, they're architectural review boards with basically no standards other than setbacks. And they just say, you know, we want to see what you're doing just to make sure that that it's a building that's built of quality materials that will last the, st- the test of time, which I'm all for that. Um, but, but Otherwise, if a, feel free to
0: design yeah, your UFO house. Go yeah. after
1: it. Yeah, right. When you get into stylistic regulations where you're basically saying that we're willing to give up the outlying projects in order to maintain consistency you know that's when I start you you can start to see that you know and then and then the further the more successful or or the 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 more that development grows it becomes more and more evident that you've gone too homogenous you know and I think you and some of that uh, community or that charming characteristics of neighborhoods are going to be have a harder time sprouting in in that kind of environment. So.
0: And, and my favorite neighborhoods always tend to be the ones where the architecture is different, where all the houses don't sure. look like the same builder sure. or the same design, same yeah, layout. Absolutely. I mean, that adds character to it. Absolutely. What does this area not have enough of?
1: I'm guilty of this as much as anybody, but I think it's something that we as a community have to look at even more and more. I think it's becoming more and more critical, but uh, scalable energy and resource management. I think the idea that, like I've kind of said earlier, we have as much sun and as much wind as any place in the country and we have as little water as any place in the country. I think we why Amarillo is not a hotbed of solar and wind and energy technology and water reclamation and water collection uh, technologies, you know, I think all those are opportunities that we should be pursuing and, and and perfecting, in my opinion, and applying to every project. We've been spoiled by the Ogallala, you know, and, and the water table. But I think um, just as designers and developers and just as community members, finding ways to produce energy or to save resources uh, is something we should be pursuing on every project and pursuing in every walk of our lives. We're a community built on, uh, natural resources whether it be oil or cattle or now wind energy i mean we are moving making great strides in that but I th- even just like when i say scalable i'm thinking like what can we do what can i do at the level of my home where i can make my decisions right. and, and the technology is just not affordable at, at at that level that's something we could certainly use more of
0: how do you describe amarillo to people outside this area
1: i love talking about amarillo i uh you know, I think one of the best things about moving away from Amarillo is that it refines your perspective and, and honestly couldn't wait to move home. I mean, the kind of the, the wide open spaces are um, kind of mesmerizing and it just feels like home to me. And so uh, I love talking to people about it. And a little bit of my family history is that my father, Steve Rogers, is from Hale Center. Mm-hmm. And my his father, Tommy Rogers, was a... Uh, farmer in Hale County. And uh, my grandmother, Louise Rogers, was a math teacher who actually had a degree in architecture from Texas Tech way back before uh, my grandfather went to the war and and she went to work on the farm. But um, she was quite the West Texas woman. She was uh, blunt as any person I've ever encountered. Her perspective is something I always think about from this part of the world. What I like to say about going to her house is that you're always loved and that you're always welcome and that you're always expected to do your part. And I think that's how I perceive our community. All are welcome and all are loved and people are giving, just like I've listened to all, all these uh, nonprofit organizers that you've had on your show that um, talk about the generosity of our community, but at the same side of that token is that you're expected to, to pony up and to... And to do what you can. And uh, there are no free rides. And it's a, I think that grows out of you know, the pioneer spirit. And this is a hard part of the world to, to scratch out a living as a prospector or a farmer. Um, and so I think those characteristics are still in our DNA.
0: What's your favorite street in Amarillo?
1: My favorite street in Amarillo? I'm going to go back to kind of what I've said. Uh, you know, charming is not my job. I think building community and looking for opportunities to make connections is, is what architects do on a daily basis. Um, so when I think about streets, my first thoughts were Polk Street, uh, Julian. You know some of these streets that the, some of the streets in uh, Wooflin with you know the brick pavers and all that. Mm-hmm. But um, but if I'm really honest with myself, uh, my favorite street in Amarillo is I-40 because of what it brings us. And also where it takes us, um, the opportunities that we have—you know—a lot of people give it a bad rap because of um, you know, kind of the, maybe the idea of us being a truck stop or the amount of truck traffic or you know, this the maintenance that's required to to keep a road of that scale and that density working great. But um, where would we be without it? You yeah. know, it is the mother road, uh, or it is the new version of the of Route sixty six. You know, it's there's something inspiring to me that you can just pull right out and go you know you you know it's like my brother lives in nashville you know if i could make one right turn out of the parking lot here and get on i-40 and not take another turn until i got to nashville yeah you know um i don't know i just think of it as a um brings a lot of economic development to our town there's a you know the amount of traffic it's something we have to embrace i think uh, mayor nelson has said some of that, like it's it is, it is our spine. You know, we should do a better job of developing the um, I forty corridor and and, and uh, making it inviting to people coming from other places. You know, I but I, at the base level, to me, uh, I think of it kind of like the Bifrost. You know, which is a super nerdy Marvel thing to bring up. Yeah, but I mean, nobody's
0: mentioned that either on the. Podcast. Is that the
1: first Bifrost yeah. comment? Yeah, I mean, you know, Thor. You know, he just walks over there and he. Turns that deal in that rainbow thing, and he just shoots to wherever in the universe he wants to go. And so I think I forty, kind of frost of Amarillo. Yeah, that's my uh, my romantic notion of I forty. Yeah. All
0: right. Speaking of that corridor, when was the last time you visited the Big Texan?
1: Oh, I love the Big Texan. Uh, I went through on my birthday, um, and I turned forty in August, and um, and there really was no there was no discussion. that we were you know free steak. You know, show him your. I love that you have to show them your driver's license. You get that free steak. We have a big family like I said and we can invite everybody and we go out there and you can watch two or three people fail miserably at the big stake but just the you know Bobby Lee and, and those guys we've done a few projects with him and just that's that same idea that you know you have to embrace where we are mm. and what we have and why we have it and just being real honest about maybe it's not it's not honest architecture maybe you know but it's like kind of that wild west facade um, but very honest as in the way that they treat people from all over the yeah. the country, and you can go in there and strike up a conversation from somebody from uh, England. We we were in there f- waiting for Bobby one time, and we met a couple who uh, saved their money. I think they were from Birmingham, and they flew to Chicago and rented a Ford Mustang and were driving as much of the historic Route 66 as they could. And they were in, and, th- and we we caught them here and had a nice. They conversation. will always stop here, and they will stop. Yes. Yeah. And they want to see somebody go after that steak.
0: All right, last question: Pack a sack or toot and totem? Toot and
1: totem. Yeah, I am. I am toot and totem for sure. The uh, part of that goes back to just being a kid in Amarillo, growing up. And as soon as you're old enough to get on your bike, and, that's
0: that's freedom to a kid. Man, going and going and go toot and totem that, Leave your bike by out
1: front and go in there and buy candy and a coke. Um, now, for me, it's, you know, I, I I don't drink coffee and I've given up soft drinks, and so. They have a particular kind of tea there that I like, and so um, my preference there just to just to fine tune that answer a little bit is that I would prefer to go to an old school and totem mm-hmm. as a as a new one, and I, and I, the one With that the I go to. With a little fin kind
0: yeah, absolutely. of absolutely know, It makes like no chimney yeah, design
1: and it makes architecturally you know they're they're collecting water on the roof and kind of a butterfly. It just makes no sense, but. Again, that's the one I, you know, when I was going to drop my BMX out front, that's the one I was going to. And typically now you go to one of those. Like the one I go to is at uh, Tascosa Road, out mm-hmm. there past everything. And, um, you know, I know the the attendance there. They've been there forever. You get a different experience at that scale, and it, and it just kind of feels right to me. But probably that's just kind of a remote, romantic notion. I do have, I have to give credit to this, to uh, Sean Fuquay that works for Emerald National Bank. He's their facilities guy. Had the idea that somebody needs to create a coffee table book of all the things that old toot totems have turned into you know yeah that's like a, the, a great idea i mean i think that it's it's boundless and and every day somebody else has done something great with this you know this perfect scale from an art entrepreneurial standpoint it's the perfect scale just a nice little Building, rectangle got a got a little bit of parking lot Um, got nice frontage you know it's a it's very comfortable to everybody. Everybody knows what the building type is. It's, um, Yeah, it's a great incubator.
0: All right. Well, that concludes the uh, eight straight questions. Mason, I'd like to end by asking my guest to endorse something. So what is something that you would want local people to know about or to experience?
1: I would like to endorse uh, our local artists and craftsmen. I, uh, in my profession, we get to deal with a lot of craftsmen, and we make it a point here at, at Playa— to, uh, to really get to know the craftsmen on the job it's it's pretty easy to kind of skim over the surface and just wait until the the work is done but the but the, we really are blessed with a um, great group of craftsmen in our town and the artist you know we we incorporate art into every one of our projects like seventh and Polk would be that um, crush uh, worked with John Ravette to come up with mm-hmm. a, um, a painting for the dining room but also using that same, pattern to create an acrylic kind of shadow sculpture at the bar and so those those conversations were happening even during the design process that at six car kind of after the shell was kind of put together they uh, worked with Rachel Edwards to do that just amazing enormous mural. mural yeah and just the scale and the and the detail has just been really inspiring because AOMS out there on Sansa, you know he worked with uh, a sculptor out of Santa Fe to uh, to have this horse commissioned and so there's a barrier, I think, you know, part of our uh, get it done attitude in this part of the world, maybe the, the, the art or the, the aesthetics maybe get pushed to the side um, or maybe just seem like there's something that's um, not a good use of resources. But really, we have such a great artist community, photographers, sculptors, painters that would love nothing more than to be approached to collaborate and to do a commission uh, either for an existing, for your home for your for a new building for an existing building all those opportunities and we've had such great philanthropists over the years the harringtons the Bivens, the wares now um, and their commitment to art and uh, public places we're blessed to have such a strong artist community and and i would say everybody needs to go out and buy an original piece of art for their
0: home i concur mason rogers thanks so much for being on the hey marlo podcast i appreciate it
1: thanks jason it was a pleasure.
0: And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Mason for the original interview and for being cool with a re-release of this episode. Learn more about his architecture firm and projects by visiting playadesignstudio.com. Thanks to Panhandle Plains, Bivens Point, and Wick Realty for sponsoring the show. And as always, I'm especially grateful to the local people who support this podcast financially and help me keep it free every week through patreon.com slash heyamarello. Pamarillo's executive producers include Chris Josh Wood, Barbara and Jim Witten, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Jess Heredia, Neil Nassiman, Joshua Rafe, and Ryan Pennington. This has been episode 173. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.